Roger. Yeah, I think he's pulling the wrong one. I'm just... Okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. There was still a little bit uh, left in the... Okay, don't hold it quite so tight. Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is how it's going to start. Welcome. Welcome. This, this is the, the second, second starting, starting of the Live the Tape podcast, podcast, also known as the Executive Buffet. Even better known, Daddy's Big Red Truck, pulling into the station. It's a truck that can ride on the train tracks. Got those special ass wheels. Hey, I'm Kevin Tipcorn, also known as Jason Pepperhouse, also known as, um, you know, any name you want to call me. Um, you know, his name is my name too. Johnny Pemberton here on Live the Tape. You are in the Executive Buffet. Thank you for being here. This is a wonderful space, a uh, wonderful sound space to be in. We're happy to have you here. Uh, a couple a couple items of note. If you're new, settle in. We've all been new at times. It's okay to be new. So uh, it's exciting to have you here. Also, uh, if you want to check us out to get more stuff, to get more stuff than just this, and not just, it's not just more podcast stuff. It's more like kind of everything I do because I put it all in the same place. It's patreon.com slash live to tape. That's patreon.com slash live to tape. And we have all kinds of access to everything that has come before you. Check it out. Patreon.com slash live to tape. Exclusive mixes, music mixes, um, playlists, also access to merchandise that comes out, you know, about every once in a while but you get access to it there okay also please rate review and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet yeah, yeah, yeah. that helps that everybody out um also you should know i'm going to be doing some live shows coming up here i will be in portland oregon on the uh in june on the 13th at helium comedy with my dear friend Barry Rothbard will be doing a show together and in in Portland on June 13th at Helium. Check it out. And the next day will be in Arcata, California on the 14th. Uh, we don't have the venue locked just yet, but I mean, it's not a very big place. You'll figure, figure it, out. it out. And we might be in San Francisco area on the 15th, okay? So just, just keep, keep your, your eyes, eyes open. open. And uh, some more stuff coming in July and uh, po- definitely for the fall. So just keep keep being ready for that. I'll, I'll have the um, – I'll post all that stuff on Instagram and Twitter like crazy. My Instagram is Johnny underscore Pemberton, Pemberton. and Twitter is just Johnny Pemberton. So if you want to stay abreast of those, those situations, situations for live dates, go follow me on those places. And also just keep listening to the podcast and all stuff like that. Have an amazing podcast for you here today. A repeat guest. Haven't he hasn't been on in a long time. I think maybe it was actually twisting the wind days. Uh, Ryan Nasichuk. He's a brilliant 
um, botanist, gardener, plant scientist person who we talked many, many years ago into a two-part episode, actually. So if you want to, you can check that out still. You got to check it out because it's so good. And uh, today we talked again and he's doing all kinds of amazing stuff. I'm so happy to share this with you. It's a great time to get into gardening. I feel like it's always a good time, but right now is especially a great time, especially if you live in like a, like a northern region. Uh, right now, stuff's just, it's not too late. It's not too late to get some stuff on the ground right now. It's so easy and so fun. I mean, you can hear us jaded gardeners talking a little bit about it, but when you first get into it, man. So hopefully that can inspire you and hopefully you enjoy this, uh, my conversation with Ryan Nasichuk here only on Live Today. Hello, Johnny. Ryan. How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Great, it's Am working. Am I coming through? It's working? It sounds okay? Yeah, you sound like a classic phone call. It sounds great. Wonderful. Cool. So I, I guess the audio will be lower quality from my end, but you're going to record it like pro in, with pro equipment. Is that how that works? I guess so, yeah. You, you could say that. But it's all going to be mixed okay. together. It'll, it'll sound good. I feel like it's a good sound. The, uh, the sound of a phone, to me, is better than the better than like digital like degraded digital so i'd rather have a phone that's like a lower you know what i mean it's like it sounds it just sounds better it's like compressed okay i think i understand yeah instead of that glitchy sound yeah exactly a poor digital signal that makes sense yeah cool i wonder if it's an aesthetic that people will maybe long for in the future maybe it'll become something that people are nostalgic for i think they are more lo-fi yeah yeah and i'm one of them (laughs) like so yeah yeah definitely are you are you into lo-fi music and sort of droney, glitchy kinds of sounds in music? Oh, definitely, yeah. 100%. Yeah, cool, cool. Right on, me too. That well, how's good. your garden? My garden's doing pretty good. I mean, it's it's actually kind of busting out right now. I've got oh my, yeah, uh, I've got some peas, some uh, shelling peas that are. It's hard to let them because with, with the, I've been growing peas for a while, but not like you know. I'm not like a pro at them, but I feel like I've done them enough. I always grow the same variety. I grow this variety called Champion of England. It's, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know that variety? Yeah, I do know that variety. It's so funny, yeah. They are like the best shelling peas for some reason. They're like, when you get, get them right, they're just like, uh, they're really sweet, and they just, they're just they super productive, uh-huh. and the vines get really big. Oh, wonderful. Are they like six foot plus vines? Yeah. Right now they're probably about five feet, maybe something like that. But okay. Upper end of my trellis. So they're kind of having a little bit of trouble um, staying staying upright. 
Ah, uh, they're doing. Are they doing that flop at the top of a trellis where they grow up and then flop down? Some of them, yeah. Some of them have done that. Uh, which is I love that. Yeah, it's it's such a weird thing because it's like it, you almost have like this S curve because it it bends over and then it grows mm. back up based on its own. Mm. Such a strange yeah. uh, arrangement. Ah, uh, they're so beautiful. Peas are the most beautiful plants. That soft green color and nice flowers, and it's nice to gaze upon peas. When did you sow peas? In I Los Angeles, probably. Gosh, this is the this is the part of gardening I'm bad at is doing like the Martha Stewart thing where you have like, oh, March 10th I put the peas in. <laughs> you know, March 20th we did this. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, um, I did them probably about two months ago, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It's hard to say. That's so I mean, interesting. From my latitude, that's a fascinating thing to consider that you sowed them two months ago and they're five feet tall now i'll oh, sell yeah. mine in two weeks probably <laughs> yeah but i'm sure that i mean i always feel like as much as we have that second spring here we we can grow so much stuff there's also the um <clears throat> the thing where it's like it also gets so hot in the late summer here where you can't do a whole lot ah uh, so, so, so do like, even like tomato plants wither and things like that everything. or can they carry on they can. But really? A lot of times I feel like you have to set up a um, some type of a, a shade screen for them because just the sun is so oh, punishing. Wow. wow. Yeah, because I think a lot of times what happens is people buy these plants that say full sun, but it's like not full sun in uh, like the valley or any place in, any place in Southern California. I feel like if you get full full sun – then it's just going to roast them, especially if they're in pots or something, you know, because you just can't, the plant can't drink enough. It's yeah. so heat stressed. Wow. That's an interesting conundrum. That's um, so guard. Do gardens go largely sort of brown and dormant for like two or three months at that time of year? Um, I wouldn't say this goes, goes much brown as I feel like it's um, <clears throat> only certain stuff does well. And I think it's like if I start something too late, then it will. Or if I if I start something too early and it's um and it's like I sort of miss the mark as far as like harvest goes, then they'll kind of get really baked and brown. Or if I start it too late, they're not established enough to handle the the heat. So then they kind of they get they get uh, knocked down. Yeah. Oh wow! Oh, that's such a different challenge from what I've been faced with. Because you're I, on an island, anything... right? Isn't that right? Yeah. I'm I'm on an island. I'm at 50 degrees latitude, so I'm I'm at sort of well. There's agriculture happening mm -hmm. above 50 degrees in some parts of the world, but it seems, from my understanding, most of the agriculture happening in the world is lower at lower latitudes, really. Right. And so the day length change over the course of the year is fairly extreme, and the winter times are pretty gloomy. I mean, very much like the same latitude as the northern United States, excluding Alaska, I suppose, because Vancouver's at 49 degrees. Oh, so you're just, in, you're just north of Vancouver, basically. Yeah, I think as the crow flies, it's probably roughly 200 kilometers, maybe okay. more, maybe a little bit more, probably less than 300, though. And the climate is very similar. I think our summers are a little bit drier because of the location of mountains on Vancouver Island, because mm -hmm. my island is between Vancouver Island and the the mainland and there's mountains up like along the along Vancouver Island there's a, a mountain range and I think a lot of moisture is dropped there before it gets to my island after it crosses the Pacific what is the island so it's a quadra q-u-a-d-r-a okay 
it's closest to the town of Campbell River. Campbell River is a town, like a mid-sized town on the east coast of Vancouver Island. And we've got a couple thousand people. No one seems totally sure. Two to three thousand people, maybe, and a lot of a lot of rocky land with mm-hmm. very thin soil and coniferous trees, um, and a tricky place to get crops to grow. Very deficient in a lot of minerals, and very deficient in actual soil depth too, because the coniferous trees have evolved to live here. I think largely through means of fungal symbionts. Wow. And. And so we, as a result of that, we have tons and tons and tons of mushrooms and tons and tons and tons of big, beautiful coniferous trees. But raising certain crops poses huge challenges without, without really amending the soil and making some pretty serious changes to the growing condition. So you do have to do that then, don't you? Totally. Yeah, yeah, totally. And ideally, we, I mean, we should be gardening on sites that have deep soil, but not everybody really has that opportunity. Like I moved a couple of years ago and the last place I was gardening was flat and had unusually deep soil for this area and lots of water and lots of sunlight. But now I'm gardening an east slope that is probably less than half the soil depth, depth of topsoil, and is significantly cooler. So it poses challenges, but it also presents opportunities and that's been an interesting thing to unpack, like which which vegetables I really want to focus on in different gardens. And I'm more and more interested in green leafy vegetables and winter vegetables. Yeah, that's, um, that's the thing I like. I I have a lot of spinach going right now. I have a lot of um, mm-hmm. garlic. The garlic, I made a okay. mistake. I put too much in because now it's taken up all my space. And I'm not going to oh, harvest yeah. it until like probably August or something. But the... Um, oh, wow. Okay. I mean, isn't that the case with this with the garlic? It takes a quite a pretty long time, like the to to mature. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested when you would harvest garlic down there because here we harvest it typically at the very end of July or early August. Okay, and we case, plant it in October, November usually. October, so it stays through the winter, right? Yeah, here it sends down a root. If you plant it in October here, what it does is it sends down a surprisingly deep root, and it kind of starts to send up a shoot, but oftentimes you can't even see that shoot until late winter here. And then in February, typically here, we can see little green shoot poking up, and then it's growing full steam ahead in like late spring, early summer, and then it just begins to dry down at the end of July. Yeah, I think it's pretty similar here, actually. Oh, that's interesting. Do people grow it a lot? Is it a common crop there? I don't think so. No, I think it's a lot. Mm. lot, There's too much patience involved, and I'm kind of regretting it too because it's like that thing where (laughs) it takes up all this space, but the time I I could grow two things in the same time. I could could grow two two harvests in the same time. I get one from the garlic. Ah, yes, with things like spinach or or some other fast growing vegetable. Yeah, that it is. It does take up a lot of time, doesn't it? Yeah, when I think about that, that's almost an entire year mm-hmm. to just one thing. Yeah, some of the alliums, like we grow a lot of leeks here. I love leeks, and we plant them in February under lights, and then put them out into the ground in roughly April, and then harvest them autumn through winter, and finish harvesting in about March or April. So that's wow. upwards of thirteen months. Yeah dedicated to one thing and a bit less than 13 months in the ground but almost 12 months of bed space yeah there's an interesting way to think about gardens mm-hmm. in a sort of temporal way thinking about them as blocks of time i that's like how that. i think about it a lot because for me it's like I, I look at it so much i think about like 
because now everything's popping up and I want to have arugula. I want to have like beans. I want to have all this other stuff, mm-hmm. but I have to like mm-hmm. make new space. So I have a bunch of these grow bags, you know, like the weed growers, weed, the weed growers use. I have a bunch of those to like, oh, yeah. I've been expanding my garden out into these grow bags. I mean, at the, the beginning of the pandemic, I was like, I was sure that this was going to be a new self-sustaining lifestyle. Cause you know, we, you know, all of us, we no one had any idea how long this was going to last or, the extent of it, whatever. So yeah. I was, I was planning for the long haul. Okay. And uh, so I got tons of these grow bags, and I had, had the entire driveway was like filled with grow bags. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what do you, what kind of medium are you using? And then what sort of potting soil do you fill them with? Well, just a bunch of different stuff, but, um, you know, like different, some stuff I buy and some stuff it's like I, I mend it with my, my home compost too. So okay. it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty good. I guess I, sometimes I'll even dig up some just dirt from the ground to kind of give it mm-hmm. so it's not super rich. Like for some of those things like beans or the um, – like those – some of those vegetables, that's what I always – what I, I feel like I was told that. I also – I heard you say I was always told about garlic and I cut you off. And I can't, can't stop thinking about what we were about to say. Oh, what were we saying? Uh, garlic, I was told. I was told – oh, I don't know where I was going with that. Something my brain about is harvesting full of, garlic or the time you have it in or something like that when it comes vegetable up. Vegetable stuff. Ah, uh, what was I going to say? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and maybe well, it must have not been that important then. I thought I was it waiting for like some kind of ancient grain of garlic wisdom to be like. I was always told that when you see the three the three oh. leaves emerge, then you know that spring is on the mount for oh, this is the yes, yes, yes. That kind of thing, that kind of folksy gardening thing. Oh, gardening is full of that, isn't it? Yeah. What did my uncle always say to me when? When the alder leaves are the size of a, uh, with some coin that doesn't even exist anymore, it was like a 50-cent coin or something obscure. When the alder leaves reach that size, it's time to fish for trout. And then people here always also say that when the forsythia plants are blooming, it's time to plant peas. And some people say it's time to plant your, or time to prune your roses at that time, too. Hmm. That's a fascinating thing to think about. That's an interesting way of thinking about the world through the timing of plants. Yeah. I find that very comforting. Yeah, to me, because I, w- I was thinking about that a lot recently because I put in a bunch of stuff over the winter. I put in a bunch of things, uh, a bunch of vines. I put in this, um, it's a decorative grapevine. I think it's called a Rogers Red, like a Vitus. I can't think. Isn't Vitus the prefix um, for all all grapes or something like that? Yeah, Vitus is the genus of grapes. So Vitus vinifera, or maybe it's pronounced vinifera. I'm not sure. That's I- the European wine grape. I think this is Vitus Californica. Oh, interesting. I've not heard of that one. It's it's like With a beautiful leaf? Yeah, it has these beautiful, like, this one's called a Rogers Red. And it has, like, these really cool um, red leaves that look like fall, but they're not fall. It's just they look like they're, you know, they're red like fall. And I put those in the ground. Oh, wonderful, all year. Yeah, Vitus, it's Vitus Californica, Rogers Red. I put it in, you know, six months ago. And it's been sitting there mm-hmm. dormant, and I was like, I'm sure this thing is dead. I'm sure it's dead because I saw my other grapevine, my Concord grape, coming up. And I was like, mm. oh, my God, I, this sucks. I spent so much money on this damn thing. It's not, it's not coming up. And now, you know, lo and behold, I'm just impatient. And I think just because the weather is starting to get nice and I see some stuff coming up, then it's, it's not going to mm. happen. And, you know, it's budding like hell now. It's going to go, probably go ah, crazy. Great. great. It's just so Isn't that wonderful me. that it has its own sense of time? Yeah, that stuff to me is so it's so 
it's almost eerie just how how these plants can do that how they have this um built-in clock and it's so mm. it's so confusing how it's possible that they can all all do this you know yeah i think a lot about this it is confusing it's it's um almost humbling in a way as a mm. as a human i find to watch these cycles occur and to realize that the cycles are occurring completely i have nothing to do with them and the the plants in question couldn't be less concerned with my existence they have their totally their own prerogative and they're working with these systems that we i mean i guess people study them I mean, it's not my realm of expertise at all but they feel very mysterious to me some of these cycles and triggers and um it's humbling to think about that in a way yeah i find it very helpful as a way of being less human-centric less um anthropocentric is that the word yeah, when I think so. we we focus everything on human beings and the priorities of human beings and think of ourselves as sort of the apex of the creatures in the world and something about witnessing those cycles and those rhythms of plants and gardens i find can periodically take me out of that in a way that's very comforting Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, though. These words are coming out of my mouth, and I'm not sure if I'm articulating even what I No, it does. It makes I total mean. sense. I, I agree with you. I mean, think about that. It's like Have you felt that? Yeah. Yeah, definitely where it's, a, it's sort of a, these th- Well, I guess a lot, of, a lot of it's also, for me, when I see stuff growing, you, some stuff you can't stop no matter what. Like, it's going to mm. grow, and some stuff mm-hmm. you can't help. You can't make it grow. Like, I, I couldn't yeah. make that... Um, that, that I couldn't make that grapevine start budding. I don't know. I mean, maybe I could. Maybe if I put a ton of like intense lights on it, but would would that even tell it to bud? Because it doesn't have any really photo. It was totally bare. There's nothing but brown wood. So would it, mm. would it know? Would it know that like there's that the light has changed, or would it have? Was it is like a heat thing? I mean, the the things I have to do to manipulate it would be so much effort for something that doesn't that does it effortlessly on its own right yes yes it would require massive intervention on your part total climate change probably and light change to trick mm-hmm. it to do what you wished yeah and we do that too i guess that's another part of it is that we are heavily interventionist in some ways in horticulture sometimes right. in growing certain plants we will create wildly unnatural conditions just to make them just to make them grow at all. It's really something to think about how we're completely dependent on these creatures. And yeah. most of us, myself included, and I've been gardening for a long time, you've been gardening for a long time, we still have an incomplete picture of it at best. Mm-hmm. But we rely on them every day for our direct sustenance. I I I really I'm interested in speaking with more people who are just getting into gardening. I find that to be a really wonderful thing. Like, like I have a question for you as someone who lives in a city mm-hmm. and who's interested in gardening. And I'm assuming, I don't really know, like probably, probably um, know a lot of people who at the very least like to eat vegetables. What, what do you think are ways that people can get into gardening? People who are maybe curious but haven't taken any sort of plunge or people who are intimidated by the process, like what would be your advice for those people? I always tell people to try to grow something that they want to eat, but they, mm-hmm. they really want to eat maybe like two or three things. Cause that makes them invested mm-hmm. in the plant. But I also, <clears throat> sometimes I think the opposite too, 
is you should try growing something you don't. Excuse me, <clears throat> I have a, I have tea leaves in my throat. You, you have to grow something you don't want to eat because that way you're not doting on it so much. Because I think when people tend to oh. new gardeners tend to overwater and like be impatient yeah. with the way things grow. And yeah, um, that to me is like the thing I always think because people always ask me all the time about stuff like that because I kind of developed a reputation, even though it's like I don't really know that much. I know just enough. But I think the, <laughs> the biggest thing I've found more than anything is just to make sure you're growing something in the right season because so many people, it seems like they are like, they'll tell me like, yeah, I just got some tomato plants, and it's like uh, it's November. And I'll tell uh, them, yeah. well, you shouldn't, no place should should be allowed to sell you those in November. <laughs> <laughs> because you can't grow them unless you have a fucking massive hydroponic indoor grow system, which seems to be like for tomatoes, really. Is that what you're going to I mean? That's not really meant yeah. for tomatoes. It's meant for one thing, and that's a, a cash crop. <laughs> so Yeah, for sure. It's like a thing where I feel like so many people get discouraged, including myself, until like very recently. There's a bunch of stuff I just didn't realize. Like I've been trying, I've been casually growing garlic for a long time, but this this is the first year I was like, um, how come sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't? And I realized, oh wait, I'm just I'm planning this willy nilly. I'm not paying attention to the seasonal requirements of the plant. And for the first time ever, I did that, and now I have all this like super robust garlic that's going crazy out there. And it's all because oh. I planted it at the right time instead of just because I would I would put it in a lot of times just to keep pests away. Like I'll put it in the corners of my bed. To kind of keep um, pest away, the same way I would I would plant like marigolds or something. But oh yeah, I, sure, I, yeah. Yeah, and I, I never planted it. I think I had some success like ten years ago, when in one of my beds, I just probably happened to plant the garlic at the right time, and um, mm -hmm. I was able to net uh, you know probably like five or six bulbs. You know, it was pretty pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah, that to me is like the biggest thing is the timing issue because sometimes sometimes it's like. You're expecting people. People are trying to grow something, and I'd be like, "You should not expect. There's no way in hell you're going to get anything from that plant because it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's not going to grow right now. It's just not the time for it." Uh, this is. I think that's a very good strategy to focus on on seasonality first. That makes a lot of sense, and to get people to consider that because mm -hmm. I, you're right. People often don't consider that, do they? I your tomato example is very interesting because here the equivalent is with winter vegetables. And people will come to me in October and say, I've just planted all of my kale and chard and such for winter. And <laughs> but really? they're two months. Like, we want to have kale and chard in, in early July at the latest in my garden, maybe a little bit later. But people will talk to me two months later because they've gone to a nursery and they've bought some pot-bound little yeah. winter vegetable starts. And they'll plant them and they won't do anything because the growth here at this latitude, growth effectively stops by Halloween even for very hardy winter things, and then it doesn't really start again until sometime in February. So, yeah, there's misconceptions, isn't there? Misconceptions that we can put things in whenever, yeah, or that their cycles will bend to our whims. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or if we fertilize it enough. and like That, to me, is the yeah. thing I've learned so much about recently, just the idea that sometimes you just, you just can't make a thing grow, but sometimes it also it's just so happy you can't stop it. Yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. And of of dealing with the fact that there will be inevitable failures. Mm -hmm. I've had a few vegetables like that. I think it's often heat where I live, but okra refuses to grow. I'm going to try again this year. That's but funny. okra just shrugs. 
Yeah, I would think it's just way too cold for okra there, isn't it? Too cold, yeah. Even at the hottest time of year, I had some plants that I babied along, started them indoors for months, mm. put them out at the hottest time of year or right before the hottest time of year, and they were out there in the heat in full sun, and they did like really almost nothing, as if as if they um, as if they were almost offended at the conditions. That was the feeling I had looking at them. Can you grow it well? Oh yeah, I've been actually. That's like probably the one plant I've had the most success with is okra. Oh wow! Okra and eggplant. Egg, less, this last year, oh. I had an eggplant volunteer show up, and it's—I don't, I don't understand. It's the biggest fucking thing I've ever seen. It grew right in the middle of the bed. I saw, I recognized um, it from what was a tiny seedling. I was like, "Oh my god, I think that's a, 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 a an eggplant from last year." And it just—I just, you know, nurtured it. I put some bricks around it so it didn't get mowed over, and it just fucking got huge. I, I must have mm-hmm. like. 40 eggplants off there, maybe 50 eggplants off there. It was a Japanese eggplant, I think, or a Chinese eggplant. 50 eggplants? Yeah, because it just kept fruiting over, you know, over time. Wow. They're not super That's wonderful. Big. That and I had a, I had a did squash Did it survive? Um, did it survive? I mean, it didn't survive because like, it, it got so big that I feel like, um, you know, I, I, cu- I dug it out and cut it back at the, you know, at the end of fall. Because mm-hmm. it also takes up so much space, so much goddamn space. Oh, so it just sprawled out like oh, many yeah. feet in either direction. It was huge. It was just oh. really big. It so, do people like ever get them? To, will they ever overwinter with protection in your climate, or do they usually die sometime in the middle of winter I or think, early winter? I, I think you can. I think you can overwinter literally anything here. I've overwintered. Uh, oh. I, I have. I have hot peppers and I have box peppers that have overwintered for probably about five years now. I think ah. that the plants, I, I don't know, because the hot peppers are habanero, and they're so hot, I, can, I can't even eat them. Like, no one can eat them. So okay. it's kind of like a thing where it's more of a novelty that I grow those. The, okay. uh, the box pepper, I don't know if it's happy or not. I, I still have it in the ground. It's probably going to start budding soon, but I've been cutting it back, and, and the stalks are really thick and kind of gnarled. And I've had that for probably like three or four years in that Whoa. same spot. And I wonder, actually probably two years, but that, that's maybe three, maybe three years. Yeah. Three seasons with that box pepper. I just wonder if maybe, I don't know if it likes that or not. I mean, it will fruit and it will grow, but I don't know if it's optimal for fruit production or not. I just, it's all just mm. like an experiment and I haven't really done any research about it, but I, I think it's uh it's one of those things where I have trouble California is weird because you can stuff will just stay alive and I have trouble mm-hmm. like for me it's hard to just justify ripping it out of the ground when I like it's this thing is still alive it's still being successful and somewhat productive so mm. but maybe well, that you know, resonates yeah I'm sure someone might tell me you know an expert like you would be like yeah well maybe it's I don't know maybe something's happening with the plant that changes well, its don't... nature yeah, I hesitate to say I'm an expert at anything. I've, I think I've decided that I'm fully not an expert, and I'm I'm feeling more and more that way to the point where I think I'll eventually change careers entirely. But I'm I'm very curious about that whether there's a decrease in vigor and yield, like because they're fast growing plants. I mean, I've all, I always think of them as annual plants because of my climate, but I I think there's it's certainly plausible that they would decrease in yield after a couple of years. I wonder about that. The only time I ever saw Oh, yeah, I saw these eggplants much closer to the equator, probably at 
20 degrees latitude or 15 or something in the tropics. I saw someone show me their three-year-old eggplants once, and they were these, wow. they were tree-like. Like a bush. Like I remember a they were in the courtyard. Okay. Yeah, arching upwards. They were arching upwards, and I remember walking amongst them in the in the. They were in like the courtyard of a farmhouse out in the countryside. Where was this? And being totally, this was in Myanmar. Oh wow! Okay, um, that's like the eggplant. And I that's remember, like eggplant zone for real. They grow some cool eggplants in that part of the world. They really like to grow. Uh, they grow many many types, but they like to grow tiny little ones. Mm-hmm. And there's some that look like clusters of. I think they might be a different species. There's some that look like clusters of. Um, they almost look like pepper, like not green peppers, but like yeah. black pepper pepper, like clusters. Have you ever seen that? Like a, a spray of little, maybe spray is not the right word, like a, yeah, clusters, yeah, like little green like, thing. Almost like grapes in a way, but it's a little bit bigger, yes. right? Yes, yes, yes. But these ones were little eggy shaped ones, mm-hmm. I think. They grew fabulous watermelons too. That was in, yeah, that was in Shan State in Myanmar and wonderful um melons watermelons i'm i'm really keen to figure out a way to spend some time at a lower latitude at some point in my life and grow spend at least a year to try to grow crops somewhere further south because i feel like that will be very very illuminating and i think so much about latitude and day length and yeah it's such a big really, thing isn't it it's huge and it never was really and i shouldn't say never it was it came up very seldom in my education using the term education very broadly like it came up very seldom at school it came up very seldom in books i have read it does come up once in a while other gardeners very seldom talk about it and i think it's enormous and i think the implications of it are massive and i think it would be like without hyperbole probably one of the best experiences in my whole life to go to 20 something degrees latitude or even 10 degrees maybe even the equator, but I think that brings a whole other, that's a whole other education too, I think. But I think the subtropics or somewhere in that area would be very fascinating to, to cultivate plants and to see what other people are growing and to see the plants that are not used that commonly for cultural reasons. That's another thing I'm realizing is that what people grow in their gardens here, at least I can really only speak for here, but I guess everywhere is dictated. It's not just dictated by growing conditions and climate and technical stuff, but it's mm-hmm. dictated by what people were taught and what is part of their food culture. And I'm, I'm increasingly becoming convinced that there's all of these crops that would be welcome, like they would be folded into my local food culture here if they were introduced and if they were grown. Like the only thing that's preventing them from existing in my local food culture is, um, I don't want to, culture is not quite the right word. Like they don't exist here because people weren't taught about them basically. Yeah. Isn't it also some of that stuff is just simply like you're talking about okra. The reason you don't have okra there is because it just doesn't grow. Yeah, some of it is that, but I'm thinking of the things that are not that. Like okay. some of the other, some of the things that don't exist. Like I'm, I'm the more I garden, the more I feel like it's a very long list of things that could grow here, mm-hmm. but do not for reasons other than climate, soil, technical stuff. Oh, because people just don't people don't want them because they don't know about them. Yes, and they're not part of the history, and they're not part of the past. Because I feel like so much of what I ate up until, I don't know, up until my early adulthood, I suppose, so much of what I ate and what I cooked, and still to a large extent, was just a product of my parents and my Mm -hmm. grandparents and our culinary history and such. And 
That list of plants, though, it's not a single list. It's a little list in my head for my area. It contains some gems, like some things that um, one that jumps to mind is a couple of fruits or two that jump to mind are persimmons and mulberries, Mm -hmm. both of which will grow very well here, but are not commonly part of what people want to eat. Weird. Um, That seems like kind of odd that that wouldn't be (laughs) that wouldn't be something. It does seem odd, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the same. But there's other. It happens in other. Yeah, do mulberries grow well in LA? They grow like crazy, but you only see them coming from Turkey for the most part. I feel like. Ah yes, okay. So a place where they're, yeah, a place where they exist as a common part of the food culture. Right. And it's in. It's definitely. I think this is. I don't want to say universal, but I. I suspect that this is something that that I feel like there's lists in other places too where people would potentially be very interested in eating them. Like we're not the only, my area is not the only place where we have these sort of um, plants that have not become part of the food culture, but maybe could. I think it happens all over the place with different plants. So. Oh yeah, I mean, because I feel like you could you could probably grow, you can grow almost anything in the desert if you have water, right? Because that's like a thing where mm. that's isn't like the Central Valley in California is essentially a kind of a desert, but they irrigate everything because they get so much goddamn sun that they can grow yeah. anything. So they can just, that's all cash crops they're growing up there. So Yeah. Do you ever drive through there? Have you ever taken a trip through that area? I have. Some parts of it are honestly extremely bleak and terrible. It's the kind of thing okay. where it's fully on, it's full on industrial agriculture. It's, um, it's not good. It, parts of it are, you're just, just really gross. And, um, uh, bleak and just yeah, it's not it's not it's not really, it's sort of like the um, like the underbelly of California in a way. It's like where so much oh, wow. work goes on, but at the same time, it's also just very yeah. It's just all these industrial farm operations, and so it's really flat and it's really really hot. I'm talking like like Modesto or like Bakersfield, like these these areas. I mean, some of Bakersfield because it's up against the mountains, but it gets, it's just super, super hot and it gets really, uh, mm. there's not a lot going on there. I mean, there's other places closer to the, and there's just so much going on in California that's kind of like, um, it's overwhelming, but that's definitely a part that's not considered, it's not super, like no one's going to vacation in Fresno. That's for sure. <laughs> They're just not. I think it's like, it's not pretty. Yeah. It's, so it's flat and, bleak uh that's i think i might belong to a very small group of people who would conceivably vacation there you might but also (laughs) here's the other thing about it is it's there's a lot of pollution there's a shitload of pollution Ah. that happens Mm. because of all the industry and all like the stuff that goes on there and it gets trapped because of the mountains and so ah a lot of times central valley in california has some of the worst air quality in the state if not the country because of that effect so you sometimes you drive through there and you're just like, this, this looks gross that I'm breathing. <laughs> I'm breathing this stuff, you know? Oh, I had no yeah. idea about that. I oh, I assumed yeah, that the air was relatively clear there. No, only at the, only at the coast, really. I mean, this this changes a lot, and also I'm not like, I don't know about this for sure, but, but I know I know to some extent that I'm always checking the air quality in like Bakersfield and Fresno and stuff like that just just to see how bad it is. Because it can be really bad oh, in those wow. places because of the because of the valley effect. But at the same time, it's also I mean also the heat makes it the fact that it gets really hot and affects it as well. 
but it's um i imagine yeah well that must shut down that's something i'm interested in like it's very sunny but it gets extremely hot at sometimes of year do they do they basically let some of those fields go fallow during the very hottest months and then replant in like late summer autumn i'm not really sure actually i know that they they probably do a lot of winter farming yeah i bet they do because it's so hot then but they can you know they can grow the hell out of strawberries and stuff in the middle of the winter because it's it's enough heat and they can well, they can they can trick it all you know it's enough to yes. um to so some of those those plants that are like temperate that you would grow like in the summer in northern latitudes you can grow through the out the entire winter in places like the central valley in california so i think that's i think that's what the mailing what they do is they do stuff like that because because oh can, that's fascinating you know? yeah very interesting i i was reading recently that there's another place like that i think it's the area surrounding Yuma, Arizona, if I recall correctly, oh, wow. okay. apparently produces a lot of um, the winter vegetables, like like things like um, romaine and iceberg lettuce and stuff. And the industrial scale winter vegetables, apparently a lot of them come from there, too. It makes sense. Yeah, I think that would be so interesting to see. To check out the industrial winter farming? Yeah, very yeah. much. I think I'm totally fascinated by industrial farming. It's not something that I'm involved in other than... Mm-hmm to watch it but i'm increasingly drawn to seeing seeing that like where food comes from at great scale and what that means for yeah what that means for us for people because it feels um i don't know like it it feels like great big giant fields are going to keep being cultivated no matter what happens and i'm interested in the implications of that and, and who's doing that and and the ethics of that and what that means for the surrounding communities and the water. And yeah, I would like to explore that more and see more of that. It's there's something um, terrifying about it and also totally alluring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see and, what you're saying it's, yeah, there's like a, a combination of things going on there. Yeah. It's a, it's a combination of things. And it's like, a, it's almost a feeling of dissonance in my mind. Like I, I sometimes look upon a big green field of food and think, like it's there's something wonderful about it too, mm-hmm. but it's also really scary to see like a sprayer go along and spray unknown mist, you know, some yeah. type of pesticide, maybe probably, maybe something benign, maybe something extremely toxic, often not possible to ask. Uh, yeah, I want to see more of that. Where would you like if you were to pick another climate or another place? to try gardening for a little while. Like, do you ever think about that? Is there a place that oh, you'd yeah. be keen to try time. raising vegetables? Would, where would it be? I'd want to grow someplace in the north where the where the summer is shorter, but it's like, you know, maybe even, I grew up in Minnesota, maybe even someplace uh, that far north, or maybe like what I think probably is the best place to grow in America, at least from my perspective, at least what I think is someplace like Missouri or like uh, mm. Tennessee, because they get, they have snow, they have a clear winter, so you have to stop. You know, you have to stop what you're mm-hmm. doing. But the summers are super wet and super hot, and they just have like such rich soil from all the, uh, from all like you know, like uh, what do they call that? Like the glacial activity from whenever the hell that was. So they have this mm-hmm. super rich soil, and you can just grow all this stuff. I would think it'd be cool to try to grow there. I just would love the Fair. idea of having an actual winter where instead of feeling like I have to always be gardening. There's a time where it's just like, hey, nothing's growing right now, so you, there's nothing to do. Like, take a, take a chill. Yes, yes. 
Well, I at some point will be trying to sublet my place for a year, and it will come with a garden and chickens. So if you'd ever be interested in trying a gloomy winter, a gloomy maritime winter, there might be an opportunity. (laughs) So you guys, so you have chickens in your garden, huh? Yeah, well, I live with I live at my friend's place. I moved here a couple of years ago, and he, um, they're more his chickens, but he has this flock of chickens. But they they're not in the vegetable garden. They're sometimes in part of the orchard, okay. Uh, but they're fenced out of the vegetable garden, and I wonder about what would happen if we left them in the vegetable garden. I know people do let them in their vegetable gardens, but I think they scratch a lot. Yeah, and I've would heard. I mean I know they scratch a lot. They would make a mess, I think. I guess they can do good and bad, right? If I guess you you can like let them out for a limited amount of time, and they'll they'll get a bunch of grubs and stuff. They'll get some bad stuff, mm-hmm. but then too much time, they'll just tear it up, huh? I suppose, yeah. I suppose that's why people use chicken tractors. What is that? Have you ever seen a chicken tractor? A chicken tractor, it's a structure. Usually it's a movable structure, sometimes on wheels. And it's a kind of a simple framed chicken coop that you can move over a certain square footage of land. So you can take it and, for instance, you can can build them so that they fit over one of your vegetable beds, for instance. I've heard of it being done this way. And then you can put your chickens in the tractor and the only area that they're able to roam around in is it's constrained by the chicken tractors. So they do their grub picking or their digging or whatever in the area you want them to. And then you can just move the tractor elsewhere oh my um, God, that's so and funny. then cultivate the bed. It's a way of rotating. I, I've, I don't, I've never actually done it, but from what I understand, it's a way of rotating the benefits of chickens through a piece of land, but preventing them from going willy nilly and just mm-hmm. doing as they wish everywhere. But they also shit everywhere so that you want that that nice uh, shit in the garden too, right? Well, I guess. That's a question I've always had about it. Like, my, I was always taught that it's not a great idea to take fresh poultry manure or really any fresh manure and try and plant into soil that's being amended with that immediately. It's too, like, hot, right? I, it's too much nitrogen? It's too hot. Yeah, that's what people always say. It will burn. I said, and and um, I think there's other nutritional reasons as well that I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I have enough of an understanding to articulate, but I think it can cause nutrient tie up of various sorts too, potentially. And what does that mean? Well, that's when, I mean, the example of that would be probably more with manure from horses or cows or something where there's a lot of bedding in the manure. So bedding is typically high carbon material used to absorb odors and moisture with Mm -hmm. livestock. So it might be, um, sawdust or it might be straw or something of that nature and if you were to incorporate manure that's got a bunch of bedding in it into the soil what happens is the microbes that are going to be decaying that organic material they need nitrogen to break down the carbon so, oh, so bedding like it. straw what's yeah they, they basically they borrow it so if you have a lot of carbon that you've just dug into your soil so say the extreme example would be you dig a bunch of sawdust into your soil right the microbes would have suddenly, they'd be faced with a ton of carbon relative to nitrogen. There's almost no nitrogen in the sawdust, but there's lots of carbon. So they need nitrogen to build proteins and to basically build their cells. And they need carbon as a food source, carbohydrate energy, and they need both. So to break down that much carbon, they're going to scavenge as much nitrogen as they possibly can from just the soil adjacent their activities. And temporarily, it will be unavailable because it's going to be tied up basically in the bodies of living things for a while. Oh, okay. So that's that's nitrogen tie-up. It's not as big of a deal when you lay carbon atop the soil. Right. I, in fact, I don't generally worry about it at all. I think that has to do with the – you've created a very narrow interface of carbon and soil. 
And I think that the nitrogen tie-up is really probably only occurring pretty close to that narrow interface. But it's when you dig in particularly a high surface area carbon, like something that's a fine particle size, and you mix it in with the soil. I think that's typically when this becomes a big problem. Wow. Okay. That makes, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize, I, I knew about this, but I didn't realize why that was the case. And now it makes so much sense. I just didn't realize that all this time. I'm glad that made sense. I hope I explained it correctly. I, yeah, totally. I worry with podcasts that there's going to be people who know, I guess, I guess it's not something to really worry about, but that there's going to be people who know a lot about this topic, potentially listening and saying, no, no, he got it wrong. He got it wrong. So I apologize. I think that that's, My, I feel like it's the opposite. There's a lot of people who don't have any idea listening and they're interested. And at the same time, it's also, it's impossible to say everything right all the time. And that's you know, true. That's what this is for is to it's, say something wrong and who cares about it. But, I, that's a really nice way of thinking about it. Do you think people are do you think people are um hungry for garden content in podcasting uh, like I think so. I think a lot of pan, times anytime anytime I talk about it people are always interested in it because it's like something where I don't know, it's just like it's kind of like a it's always interesting because it's never going away. Um it's always yeah. changing. I think there's like I know a pretty good amount, but I also I really know very very little compared to like someone like yourself, and, and you even say that you don't know anything, which I know is not true. But it's... I don't know anything. Not a single, I literally don't know a single thing about gardening anymore. I, That's what I tell people. Now. Yeah, which is like the classic thing I always talk about in the podcast. Is anyone, ever, anyone I talk to who says that, it's like that's that's that Dunning-Kruger effect where, you know, oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, 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 I play a little piano. It's like you're a fucking... You've been playing for 30 years. It's like, yeah, the longer you do something, the more you learn that you don't know, I feel like. And with gardening yes, for me, yes. yeah, pe people ask me questions, and I always say, like, look, I don't really know. I can troubleshoot my own garden, and that's about as good as it gets. And even then, mm -hmm. like, I'm really good at like, well, diagnosing stuff. Like, I can kind of, like, sense, like, okay, this seems like something. I can tell this was going on here. I can tell, like, the color of this, the way this smells. But as far as like actually telling people what to do or or why it's happening, I don't really, I never know really. Hmm. I think you're being a little humble. Well, okay. I feel like you have some guidance for people. My spinach is bolting right now. I don't know why. The leaves are fucking huge, and I kind of think maybe there's too much nitrogen in the soil. That's that's my. That's I my, wonder. You know, what do you call it? Like a two cent opinion that maybe that's why it's bolting because even it hasn't been hot at all. But it's and I've been yeah. getting a lot of water, and the soil is really good. I think maybe it's the soil's so high in nitrogen for some reason that they are they're getting really leggy. You know, it's like they're just really leafing out, which is kind of good in a way. But I don't know. I thought that maybe I thought that um, I don't know. I just don't know why it's, they're bolting so soon. Were they from transplants or from or did you direct seed? No, I didn't. They were from little transplants, but they're really small and they grew. Yeah, I, I bought a little six-pack tray. Mm. I definitely, definitely have found that transplanted greens are much more liable to bolt, and I totally don't know why. I have mm. some suspicions, but I've found that with spinach in the past many times that I thought I had like created an optimal transplant and hardened it off perfectly and prevented it from getting pop-bound or water-stressed and all the things you do, and then still had bolting. Mm. I'm thinking about, I think transplanting 
things, I think that growing things in pots and then transplanting them effectively to the garden in a way that they are not stressed at all, I'm starting to feel like it's actually one of the more difficult things to learn in gardening. Wow, okay. Yeah, I, and I, I think it spoils a lot of plants. I've definitely had a lot more luck with direct seeding for that matter. Like stuff always yeah, that's does better. Yeah, it does often, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. This is a thing, I think. This is something that I've been thinking about lately. I, I feel like a lot of the gardens that I've seen where there's problems, I'm thinking more newer gardeners than you or I, but a lot of the newer gardens I've seen where there's problems, when I dig down and really talk to people about it, I often discover that they've started a lot of their crops in pots, sometimes indoors, sometimes okay. outdoors or in cold frames, but they've started a lot of things in pots. Sometimes they've started things that don't need to be started in pots, and often they've started things that don't want to be started in pots. But yeah. it's common that the failures in new gardens, when I really investigate them, some of the failures anyway can quite often be traced back to what happened when those plants were being produced in pots, like it's very hard for people to not inadvertently stress delicate little plants in little pots in particularly in indoor conditions. Like people here will start say broccoli or cabbage or something in the spring. They'll start it under fluorescent lights in their kitchen in warm indoor temperatures. And then they'll move it outdoors sometimes in, while it's still cool at night, like right away with no hardening off period, no transition period. And then the plant will be very stressed right from the get-go, and that will manifest in a poor crop. I see this a lot. It's hard to – it's a tricky problem, though. There's a, there's a strong urge to start little things in pots, I found. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's because it's hard. I think people have trouble um, with certain seeds. I mean, if I start like a big seed, like a, like a squash or something, I don't worry about that. Or beans, I don't worry about that, starting them outdoors. Or um, mm-hmm. like arugula or any kind of lettuce stuff that tends to, or or basil that stuff tends to do pretty well from seed outdoors, but it's other stuff mm-hmm. like spinach or tomatoes or um, other stuff that I, I don't really understand the seed as much. Those I tend to be like I don't feel comfortable starting them from seed out. out I don't feel comfortable directly sowing them because of a lack of familiarity. Yeah, I guess because or... like, like a bean or a. Um, a squash, those are such big seeds. You know they're going to germinate if you get them wet enough or long enough, right? And with, uh, the, yes. with the small seeds like the uh, arugula or like the carrots or something like that, I know I'm going to be thinning that out. So mm-hmm. I don't worry about germination rate. With stuff mm-hmm. like um, tomatoes and eggplant and stuff, I'm not, I don't plan on thinning those out. So that's the kind of thing where it's something that's a small seed that I don't um, – understand exactly how it germinates that's why I'm, I'm nervous about direct sowing that makes a lot of sense i feel like that makes sense i i think i feel the same way about about certain plants have you ever heard of station sowing no i've never heard of that station sowing is um it's a word that was introduced to me relatively recently and it's a concept that maybe is useful for some of those plants it's the idea that if you've got a plant that you're, you're planting something from seed and you want to direct seed it, but, but it's a crop that's going to be sitting pretty far apart in the garden and it doesn't make a lot of sense to sow a row of it for whatever spacing or, or reasons. Like, so it would be, I think in your climate, an example would probably be a tomato. Okay. Um, and tomatoes, maybe not the best example because they transplant very well. So there's not necessarily a need to do this, but station sowing is when 
you say, okay, I want my tomatoes to be two feet apart or three feet apart or in whatever particular arrangement. And you, you select in your mind or with a little stick or with some kind of a marker where each plant is going to stand at the finished spacing. And rather than sow one seed at that spot, you sow a number of seeds, but in that little spot, very close together, and you mark the spot. Mm -hmm. And then when they come up and when it's safe enough to thin them, you thin them to one plant per station. So instead of growing a row, and if you have spotty germination in a row, like you don't actually know where you're going to have success along that row. This is a way to put all of your seeds like to hedge your bets in the finished spacing of the plant. So Does that make any plant, sense? You plant a couple of seeds in one spot, but like over like, yeah. you know, like the space of like a fist, you plant like five or six seeds. Or even if they're small seeds, even, even smaller space, okay. but yes, in a, in a discrete spot. And then your spots are far enough apart that they are like your final spacing. That makes sense. Yeah. That's totally I'm not yeah, that's a, that. It's a way around it. It's a way around, or it's a way around certain um, dilemmas. Anyway, have you ever tested your soil? Um, I haven't actually. I think that that's a big that's a big thing. But also, my soil changes so much because it's like end of the season, I'll amend it with a bunch of stuff, you know. So it's not like it's really mm-hmm. the soil. Well, I guess I have two different soils. I have the soil that's in the yard, which I only plant a few things. There's very few things I put in the ground here. Most of the stuff I grow is in either in pots or in my, my big garden bed, which is like, you know, 10 feet by five feet kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I have not tested it, no. You might find it very illuminating. It, uh, it's a very, it's a, I, I mean, I'm a very specific type of person, I suppose, but it's fascinating for me to see, like, like with fair amount of exactitude, how much calcium is in my soil and how much phosphorus and, mm-hmm. and what are the excesses and what are the deficiencies. Um, I'm always trying to get other people excited about this, but I don't have a really good way of doing it <laughs> with words. Yeah. But the, the um, soil testing is fast and relatively inexpensive these days, and I think fairly accurate. And it's, it's illuminating, particularly the excesses. I'm, it, I'm, okay, yeah. It's very interesting to see what um, what shows up in excess. Like, we'll, I'll often find an excess of magnesium in soils that I test here because people use a lot of lime in this part of the world, and okay. the nurseries here all sell dolomite lime. Is the lime that people sell here because it's it's been agreed upon, not necessarily with rigid scientific backing, that dolomite is the right lime for this part of the coast. But dolomite lime is a mixture of calcium carbonate and magnesium carbonate, and it's fairly common that we have close to adequate or even adequate levels of magnesium, but severe calcium deficiencies in these parts. And people will add dolomite year after year after year after year, and they'll build their calcium to pretty much an acceptable level, sometimes a minor excess, but they'll, they'll bring their magnesium to a, a fairly severe excess. And I, I wonder about the implications of that for plant health and human health and Is this animal like a, health. on a, a, what kind of scale of gardening are you talking about here? I mostly test people's backyard vegetable gardens. Okay. But I'm doing a few more orchards now. I'm I don't have as much knowledge about soil remineralization in the context of an orchard, but I'm trying to learn a bit more right now. But I'm mostly testing people's yeah, people's vegetable boxes and people's in ground gardens. So um, how, how do and you finding do that, that they vary. When you take a composite sample, so there's a there's a tool, I think an auger is the word. You can use an auger. It's mm-hmm. a, a tool that, or a corer maybe mm-hmm. that takes cores. Or you can also use any kind of flat 
spade. So the way I do it is I take this flat little tool that I have and I cut a vertical face into the soil. And then I take a vertical slice of that face about eh, half an inch wide, maybe. And I cut that into a six inch core. And I take a bunch of those cores, about 15 or 20 of them per bed or per area that I'm testing. And I blend. Yeah. And I blend them all together and I send two cups of that to the lab and they test the composite. So you don't, it doesn't work as well if you take just one or two cores because you might be inadvertently taking your cores from an, an anomalous area. Like maybe that's an area where at some point a ton of manure got dropped Mm -hmm. or some fertilizer or mineral or a very specific crop was growing. So you sort of even out your results by, um, you have to do a bit of head scratching sometimes and think about the past of the garden. And I'm usually trying to take one composite sample from an area that's been treated roughly the same way over the past couple of years. Okay. Um, so sometimes that looks like one bed. Um, and I often try to take at least one composite sample from fallow soil as well, if possible. So if it's a garden that's in a grassy lawn or a grassy field, I'll often take a, a composite of the unamended soil as well. And then I can get some useful contrast. And it's also useful data if you're ever going to expand your garden. Yeah. Um, but the the bare the bare minimum way of doing it is to select an area in the garden and take about fifteen six inch cores and just blend them together and send a couple of cups of that to the lab. It's a it's not a precise precise thing. Typically, we're dealing with ranges, mm-hmm. um, and with with some soil minerals, the acceptable range is very broad, like calcium is like that. Or okay. and with other soil minerals, the acceptable and optimal range is very narrow. Like what, so what boron. Boron, okay. Boron would be a good example of that. Um, the ideal range is relatively narrow. It's expressed in the parts per million, and it beyond above that threshold, um, toxicity issues develop. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating thing, and it it allows you some insight into soil pH as well, which is sometimes oversimplified as um, well. So, soil pH, soil pH is is to an extent, a function of overall mineral balance. Um, so soil pH tells you some things about mineral balance, and mineral balance tells you something about soil pH, in a sense. But the availability of certain minerals is dictated by soil pH. So there's some minerals that are hyper-available at high pH and very much unavailable to plants at low pH. So really? that's another part of the... Like what manganese is, that? is the, the classic example um, in manganese. agriculture is manganese. Okay. Yeah, manganese becomes hyper-available at low soil pH. So one can create a, a situation of manganese toxicity if there's lots of manganese in the soil, but the pH is also too low. So, so there's these cool charts that show you this stuff. Is low pH is uh, acidic, right? Yes, and high pH is alkaline. Okay, so like, is it true that, uh, that blueberries and stuff like that, they want an acidic soil, like a fern or a yes. blueberry? And so they yes, they very do, much. they want that they want that high manganese right. Well, they they want um, a certain type of acidic soil. I'm not sure they want high manganese. Blueberries okay. are often grown in fairly poorly mineralized soils. So blueberries are often grown in soils like, for instance, where I live. I was describing this shallow soil mm-hmm. that um, coniferous trees and fungi thrive in. It's low pH. It's usually low phosphorus. It's almost always low calcium and low frankly, many other things, boron, copper, zinc, but it grows blueberries beautifully. So they're a crop that will grow in soils that for many agricultural crops are would be extremely marginal, um, but blueberries will thrive in them. 
So why is that and, though? I, I just started blueberries for the first time this year. I got a couple of, um, you know, cut, not cuttings, but you know, those, they're nice little starters. They're kind of expensive actually. I think they're like 10 or $15 each. I got four of them. I okay. got four different varieties and I started them. I put each of them in these, uh, 10 gallon soil bags. And I have three mm-hmm. of them in one location. That's kind of, kind of shady and one that's in a brighter place by my strawberries. And they seem to be doing yep. pretty well. They've all put out leaves and I put out flowers, the first set of them, but that's as much action as I've had so far. And I put a bunch of, mm-hmm. a bunch of pine, uh, boughs on the top of the soil for like mulch. Cause I figured like the pine will break right, down good. and be kind of acidic over time. And I, I use yeah. some type of soil that they, these people at the nursery, this, I go to this nursery. I tr- trust these people a lot and they gave me, they said this is the best soil to plant the blueberries in, but otherwise oh, I'm good, like sort good. of I'm so mystified by blueberries because I feel like there's something where I don't know I I, I don't understand it because I, I know like certain things like in the past I've grown carrots and like beans and I, they seem to like poor soil right like some of those those root vegetables tend to um, they don't want to have the soil be too rich. Well, yeah, in a sense. Um... But that can be oversimplified. Um, like basically, what root? Oh, this is this is so great. I, this is the kind of thing that I just like love to talk about. Okay. This is my favorite thing in the whole world. So, and you just brought up so many interesting things at once. This is great. Um, root crops, for the most part, my understanding of it is that they don't want to grow in soil that has a lot of available nitrogen. A lot of them, okay. and they generally don't want to grow in soil that's been heavily manured relatively recently. And I think those two things are, are to an extent tied together. Like a heavily manured soil will most likely have a fair amount of nitrogen availability. And, and when I started to take that into account some years ago and grow carrots and beets and parsnips in soil that um, had not been manured recently, and I started to give them no additional nitrogen and fairly judicious quantities of compost, like pretty small quantities of compost, I found that the roots became sweeter Hmm. Um, so I think it might primarily be a nitrogen issue, but they, most of those crops don't want quote unquote poor soil with regards to vegetables because they do like, um, relatively neutral ish soil, maybe very slightly acidic. And they do like adequate levels of calcium and particularly adequate levels of potassium among other things and phosphorus. So we don't want to try growing them on, for instance, in acidic soil, like they wouldn't thrive in the blueberry soil, but we also don't want to. We also don't want to grow them in soil that would be optimized for, um, what's a good example, something that likes a lot of nitrogen. Uh, corn is a classic example, or certain leafy crops. That would be too much nitrogen for them. So we want to try and, st- and starve isn't quite the right word because we're not starving them, but we want to tightly control nitrogen with them. But we don't want to, we don't necessarily need to lower the levels of other important plant nutrients. But the blueberries are going to be thriving in a soil that's low in quite a few nutrients. And my guess is that the soil that you put them in is is a low pH potting mix that's been designed for that. Like people probably would use a similar mix to grow something like a rhododendron. Okay, um, yeah. Rhododendrons and blueberries are actually in the same family of plants or cranberry, which is a very close relative of the blueberry or other acidic um, plants. But the pine boughs thing is also interesting because you're you're totally correct and this is kind of a big part of growing blueberries in many places is people will use a lot of high carbon mulch and in so doing they're encouraging fungal life within the mulch so high carbon in the environment like a bunch of chips and sawdust and stuff is going to be a very healthy environment for many types of fungi and they're 
exudates the enzymes that they exude from their hyphal tips, from their um, basically their bodies. That was a cool bunch of words just now. They exudate (laughs) some from their hyphal tips. Yeah. So a a a fun a fungus is a um, in the context of a fungus that we might. I mean, there's all different types of fungi, but in the context of fungi that might form, for instance, mushrooms or might form a mycelial network through a bunch mm-hmm. of high carbon mulch. What they're doing is at the tips of their um, mycelium, the tip is growing forward, but it's exuding enzymes out of its body into the surrounding environment. I'm using the word body very loosely here, out of its tissue. Right. Enzymes are exuded outwards into the environment and they start to break down the lignin and the other molecules that make up this woody mass that you've used as mulch. And these enzymes trickle down through the mulch and into the soil to an extent. And my understanding is that that's one of the mechanisms by which high carbon fungal growth can help to gently lower soil pH. But they're also like, I started thinking about, can I try and, can I try and say something that might not make sense? Just sort of experimentally, please. Okay. Someone, where did I even read this? I don't know. I think I pieced this together from a couple of places and I always try and say this to people or I always try and talk about this with people and it often doesn't work because I think I'm not really like connecting all the concepts correctly. But somebody introduced me to the idea that if you open your mouth, uh, this isn't going to work, but I'm going to try it anyway. If you open your mouth, the inside of your mouth, for instance, is technically outside of your body in the sense that your jaw and your body itself stops and then there's a kind of a we've created like a chamber of air around which your mouth is, but which technically is not part. It's not technically part of your body. So we can also conceptualize our whole digestive tract that way, even though it's a bit tricky to do it, but Uh like we sort of picture a, I mean, I'm not a doctor at all, but like a, to me, I think of it as a series of tubes and we can think of that as a contiguous area that is, outside of your body in the sense that it's a tube and it begins at your mouth and it's kind of something into which your body exudes enzymes mm-hmm. and in which digestion occurs. And then we absorb the products of that enzymatic decay through the membranes that make up the tubes as it were. Mm-hmm. And in that way, fungi are more similar to us than they are to plants wow. because they're exuding an enzyme outwards and the enzyme is doing its thing outside in a sense using the word outside very loosely and then we are absorbing the products of that enzymatic breakdown back through the membranes and and into our bodies and that blew my mind because that's part of a series of arguments that people make that fungal organisms are actually much closer to animals than they are to plants yeah i've heard that before i've heard that 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 we share more dna with a mushroom than we do with like like a like a a pine tree, Ooh, neat. or even like a higher organism, even like a maybe maybe even I don't know if, not, I don't know if it's mammals, but there's definitely organisms that you, anyone would recognize as being a higher life form than a, a fungus that we actually have more common historical DNA with a fungus. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. I love that idea. I guess from what you said, that it makes total so sense, though. Interesting. Well, because it, it all goes back to that—that that what's the idea? Is it called panspermia? The idea that the Earth is um, 
all life on Earth came from uh, an interstellar, or what you guess you call it, an alien, or what's the what's the technical word for alien? Um, extraterrestrial, a uh, fungal or spore spore inoculation that came from yes in space, and everything started. It's been built incredibly slowly, but well, I mean, slow is whatever it mean whatever it means. But I mean, in terms of our yeah. our conception of time, but that's all happened from. Uh, a fungal network created from an interstellar or an extraterrestrial spore. I love that so much. Even if that's not what happened, mm -hmm. I find that a comforting and deeply calming thing to think about. Yeah, when I think about it, it's but, honestly to me, it seems like how could it be anything else? Because that, in a way, it kind of makes so much sense that it's boring. Like, of, like of course that makes <laughs> sense. Like, why why would it be anything else? Well, like, I, maybe the way to, is it, does it become less boring if one considers that, so it came, it was seeded that way, but what seeded the, what seeded the, whatever seeded us? Like, yeah. the, 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 the seeds, and, and this is, I guess, something that people have been pondering and will be pondering forever, but something planted that first seed, or maybe not. Right. But, but it gets really, and will we know, are we going to do it? And will we ever know from where it came? And was it deliberate? Yeah, that that's the I guess that's the big question, right? Is, is it deliberate or not? And I, yeah. I maybe we'll, we'll probably never know. As like you and I will probably never know that. But the idea of it is like no. it exists. I, I also think about the the idea that um, you know if if because uh, people always talk about aliens and like oh we're, we're going to find alien life forms. When if you look at any garden close enough, you look at any kind of plant or insect, the insect and plant world, that even a, even a level visible to the naked eye is 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 weird and bizarre in its behavior and its looks than anything you could possibly dream up an alien life form doing. So the idea oh, like yeah. that there's aliens from elsewhere is seems to me just like kind of just a. Uh, it doesn't make any sense because we, because all the diversity, if you think about all the diversity on the earth, it's all happened because of isolation and proliferation. Like you look at like an island, like a, an isolated island, like Australia or like, like Mauritius or some of these islands that have this weird, weird, like I was thinking about, you know, you know about this uh, tree called the, <clears throat> it's called the uh, Dressania cinnabarum, I think the dragon's blood tree. I know the genus Dracaena because it's a lot of common houseplants, but I don't yeah. know anything beyond that. There's this, what, what is this one? This, it's called uh, Dracaena cinnabari, and it's this dragon's blood tree. If you saw a picture of it, you'd be like, oh, that tree. It's a crazy-looking tree. It looks like a mushroom, but it's got all these spikes. Oh. And the underneath of it, it really does look like a, like a giant mushroom, and it's uh, this crazy-looking Arab tree. I think they get, they get uh, the sap of it's used to make an incense because it has red sap. That's why it's called dragon's blood. But, ah, um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a super I'm, unique tree. It's like very, very, does it have a very bulbous base. Is the base like a woody round thing? Kind of sort of, I mean, it looks, it looks like a, um, it really does look like a mushroom in a way, but maybe if the oh, gills cool. weren't flat on the bottom, if they were, they were, um, 
if you see a picture of it, it just I'm not really good describing it. It has like the the way the branches branch. It almost looks like it's been uh, grown in a funnel. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah I, looks, I think yeah. It looks like it's grown in a funnel, <laughs> and it grows in this really unique, very like interesting structure, and uh, has this like this red sap. It's you know it's for. Um, I think it's for uh, incense and stuff, and it, and I don't know why it's red, but it's, I don't know much about it. But I know that it comes from this island called Socotra, which is off the coast of oh, Yemen. Oh, Yemen! Yeah, yeah. So it's just a tiny little place. And you think about like this this really strange tree developed in isolation on a on an island that was probably not visited by anything outside of it for God knows how long. You know, probably probably like a million years or more. You know, who knows. How long it's yeah. been. Yeah. So if you think about like these prol proliferations that are allowed to happen in a closed system, and if you think of Earth being the same way, anything that happens elsewhere is just the random events of isolated proliferation. So mm -hmm. the fact that anything exists means that everything exists. I feel like so. It's, mm -hmm. Like this is such a weird tree. Like it looks like so fucking alien. That's only because it it exists. It became it became that way because it was isolated and it had to, and it developed over time without any kind of, without like a, any sort of massive changes in its environment. Maybe I mean I I right. always want to think about like the idea that um, just any kind of thing that would develop. There's nothing that, in enough time, everything you can imagine has occurred and will occur because. It's just the the nature of nature to to like um, run all the very all the variables of numbers. If you extrapolate them out far enough, they become a life form. Ah, uh, I think I I think I know what you mean. Like that, any possibility that could be viable will be. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. So it's like it's uh. almost like we have aliens here because this is just. I don't know. I don't. If it don't, it doesn't really make sense per se, like explaining it. But I think in the idea, I just always think about the idea that something being alien is kind of absurd because we already have aliens. Yes. Yeah. I that resonates a lot. It's 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 not even something that can be directly explained. I don't think it's almost a feeling mm -hmm. or a vibe. Do you like? Do you think that we would have? Like to think about, like you said, there's if you just look, even without a microscope, if you just look at your garden, you'll see this staggering array of life forms, mm -hmm. like really amazing. What sometimes I feel like it kind of broke my brain a little bit. Spending a lot of time thinking on that makes a lot of things seem very trivial and silly in the world. Yeah. Do you ever feel that way? Like sometimes I I go out in the garden. I garden a lot at night in the summertime and I'll go out with a headlamp and I'll just look at the soil sometimes at night in the summertime when it's really warm in like July and August. And there's this endless parade of creatures across the soil, like, like mostly insects, but all manner of things. Mm -hmm. And I'll look at that and then think about my life or think about my community or country or society at large. And it will make almost everything feel very, very, very silly somehow. Yeah, totally. It definitely is one of those things where I felt I definitely felt that way a lot. 
in the garden looking at stuff because it just it's like the, it's almost like the scale like none of that stuff cares about you yes 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 that's a big part of it yeah they don't care about you sometimes i also kind of get this feeling from that kind of interaction where i i look at the stuff and i feel like oh i'm just like a, i'm just a camera that moves around that's all i am I'm just like mm. a, a i'm just like a i might as well be like a mars rover where I'm just going around observing yeah. stuff and I'm like checking it out and looking at it. And at any given time, I can only focus on one thing. And so it's not like really, I don't know. I, I think the thing that I thought, it's like the most high, high-minded point is that, um, is the idea that everything is happening all the time. <laughs> mm. Like at no point is not, at no point ever is, is, you know, it's like we're talking right now. We're obviously engaged in this, and this is what we're doing. We can't do anything else at the time. But everything else that exists is all is also doing something at the same time. So it's it's like this thing where yeah, I'm trying. I think I've seen like these images of um. I think maybe it's like some Darren Aronofsky movie or something, or maybe it's something else where you zoom in on like a like maggots devouring a corpse or something like that, where it's just this <laughs> massive, like it's super busy. If you think about it, that's like everything everywhere all the time is just this massive on some scale. There is just busyness. It's just like churning. Everything's just churning with activity at all times, mm -hmm. everywhere at some scale to where it feels like that, that time is just being blasting forth at a rate that you can't even comprehend because there's so much activity Ooh. going on. Like in the soil, like you look at the soil on a microscope and it's just, there's just a thousand things in there and they're all going about just nonstop pursuing whatever it is they're trying to do. Oh yeah. The microscope level is a mm. whole other thing. Like we would have, I don't know. Thinking about that. Yeah. And thinking about what you just said, the idea of, being a camera moving about the earth or like sometimes people say where the, what is it where the, the universe experiencing itself? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That makes me feel like all these different things and some of them are very good and some of them are very bad. And it makes me wonder what kind of world we've created. Like what kind of world would we have if everybody could peer at how many bacteria, for instance, are in the soil or everybody could get a glimpse of, what's really happening in, on the earth's crust at a microbial level and at an insect level and at a smaller level, I don't know if we'd be able to continue having our society. I don't know. If we, I think we would have to rebuild something totally different. If everybody got a glimpse of that all at once, mm -hmm. I don't think it would work anymore. I think a lot of what's super important would start to seem very silly. And I sometimes feel very sad about this. Like some gardening has brought me great joy in my life, but it hasn't been, it hasn't, it definitely hasn't like solved everything. I often have people say to me, Oh, you garden all the time. Like that's your main thing. That's your job. That's your passion. You must be very happy. <laughs> you must be very <laughs> at peace. And I have not, that's, I've not really been happy and at peace in my life generally. And I'm not complaining, but it's, it's not happiness and peace have not been things that I've had a lot of success in grasping onto thus far. But I, I wonder, like, my perspective has been shifted by looking at those bugs with that headlamp. It's, it makes, it hasn't all been good, you know? It's a, it also, t 
to me is almost a call for stillness. Um, yeah. A call for doing nothing, a call for non-economic, non-social, non-movement, non-thinking. Maybe meditation is the closest word. I think that makes a lot but, of sense, yeah. The idea of, um, I mean, it kind of goes back to what we are talking about at the very beginning, just the idea of, of certain things just not uh, doing well for certain times, mm -hmm. regardless of anything whatsoever, other than the fact of where maybe where they are in the latitude or uh, mm -hmm. what time of year it is or what, t how much light or how much temperature, just things that, that can't really be controlled except with extreme, extreme effort. Yeah. The idea that like, if that's the case, then all these things that we're trying to manipulate, like as a gardener, I feel like there's a lot of stuff. I think for me, gardening a lot of times is just me trying to have some sort of control over something. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to exhibit a lot of control, but at the same time, um, it, it takes very little effort to get something to do, to do well if its environment is is to its liking. So yeah, almost like you're just you're just a you're just observing these things do what they would do anyways. You're just kind of giving them like a little bit of a push, but it looks yeah. to outwardly it looks like you're doing all this stuff. It's like well, not really. I'm just. You just plant the seed. The seed does all the work. It's got all the programming in there. It's got the food it needs to start. It's like you're not yeah. really doing anything. You're just kind of like, you're just, just you're just setting it up. Yeah, setting, planting it. Yeah, yeah. Well, are we the same? Are we also basically largely just gonna do what we're gonna do based on the environment in which we're planted? And are like, are we analogous to that grapevine? And we're going to send out leaves when the signals within us dictate it. And we're going to drop leaves when the signals dictate it. And are we largely out of control? I kind of think so, yeah. Even though I don't like to yeah. think so. But I kind of feel like more and more that's just the case. Yes. Is there liberation in that of some kind? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there can, could be. Yeah, I think I mean, so too. It goes both ways. It's like that thing where uh, I don't know. I mean, I think you could look at it both ways. You could decide it's liberating, or you could decide it's a prison. But yes. But I guess if you're aware of something, uh, that means you could possibly control it. But it's like it's like that thing. I mean, it's like swimming upstream or something. Where why why would you swim upstream? Yeah. Yeah. When you could when you could just go with the direction that you're being funneled by the current yeah go with the flow like you know yeah. wait wait till the fucking grape the grapevine's gonna come back it's just you have to wait <laughs> it's like to try to yeah, try to make it yeah. come back is so much effort to expend and for and what do you get do you even get a better product no you don't you just get it at a different time yeah yeah You'd probably get like a terrible product if we were like we have to it's like when they make like um I feel like it's like why you can't create truffles in a lab or certain 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 um, mm. plants and animals certain plants right that you just can't see people just can't seem to cultivate. Definitely. And we don't know why. Yeah, but it's lots just of like, fungi too. Yeah, you just they can't figure it out. I saw some recently about how scientists don't know how eels congregate. I heard about this. This is the most interesting thing. And in, yes, they don't know where they like. They didn't have any idea where they were breeding up until very recently. Yeah, it's crazy. A lot of them. Like, how Are is we that thinking about the same thing? Yeah, eels. Yeah, and it's in the what is it? The Sargasso Sea. Some of them come oh, from. Really? I don't even know. Is that the place? 
They yeah, found eels it are out. not understood. I think they found out for one species. I don't okay. know because there's a bunch of different types of eels in the world, but mm-hmm. I think they found that the ones. Uh, I think it might be. A, I'm probably mixing this all up. Some some marine biologists might be annoyed. I think it's a species that exists in parts of the U.S. East Coast and maybe also parts of Northern Europe, and they knew that they were coming from a long way away. And people used to even find the little, there's a word for them, like little baby eels. Yeah, the micro eels. But they, yeah, <laughs> but they didn't know until relatively recently where they came from. And they come from this place that's like very, very, very far away. Because I think it's down, ooh, my geography might be off. Like it's like well off Florida, maybe? It's, it's I a, might be it's way the off. It's Triangle, right? That's where they go. Yeah, it's down yeah. there. Yeah, down there. The, the Sargasso Sea. It's a big um, Sargasso? Sargasso? Yeah, it's I, a, I just looked at it just now. I saw it. I'm plant. seeing it. Yeah, and it's like this swirling sea plant place out in the ocean. Sargassum. Sargassum. That's it's the plant, right? A, yeah, it's a uh, genus is Sargassum. Family is Sargassia. Order is Fucales, or I don't know how you say that. Fucales. Uh, I have no the, idea. The class is Fe. Oh, wow. Feo. Phi say. Okay. The phylum is Orcophyta. So I guess that means is Orcophyta mean a a, um, a a sea plant? Oh heavens, I have no idea. Okay. Yeah. Phyta is plant. P H Y T A, I think, is plant. And I think Orca I Orca think. Orco here it says Orco is a mostly photosynthetic heterocons. Their plastid is of red algal origin. <laughs> Oh man, this is beyond me. <laughs> way beyond, way beyond me. Uh, um, but yeah, the so eels, the eels, the eels go down there, and I guess they return with babies, but they don't. I guess they don't know how. Huh. I think they don't. They don't know the nature of their reproduction, is what they said. And so, Golly. if that's the case, it's like. I guess we're talking about this because we're talking about how. Um, there's all this mysterious stuff, or maybe uh, how uh, it's such. Well, a, we don't a... know anywhere. We went kind of almost maybe nihilist. Maybe that's not the right word. We went into a, a realm of deep uncertainty. I'm glad we did too, because I feel this deep ambivalence often when I'm gardening, or like ambivalence about this whole project of humanity and what we're up to. And um, gardening has changed my brain. I think. I don't yeah. know if it's good or bad. Yeah, I feel the same way. It's both. It's both. It's probably tends toward good because it's not a bad mm-hmm. thing. It's not like we're hurting mm-hmm. anyone or doing anything. It's definitely like right. a, a nurturing of life. But I, I see what you're saying. I feel like in the same way for me, like it makes you think about stuff in a way that maybe isn't really super congruent with other things, and maybe um, it can be. I, I think about this article. This article. This guy. Excuse me. This guy John Jeremiah Sullivan wrote this article about, you know, the guitar player John Fahey. Uh, no, I don't think so. I think he died in two thousand one, but he was like okay. a he loved folk music. He was like a big time like folk. Uh, he would a lot of his recordings were based upon much much older music like folk blues like traditional stuff. That was some of the first recordings ever made in, in the United States, and. Um, Oh. He and a bunch of his friends and buddies and people, 
they were like hardcore into recording and, and collecting all these old, super rare recordings of early music, you know? And he was into cool. recording it too. And this guy, the guy wrote the article about him was talking about how the their, his opinion, John Fahey and his buddy's opinion on some of this early music wavered between like this, like listening to this one guitar track where you hear this woman singing and no one quite knows what she's saying, but she does this thing with the guitar that they can't quite tell what it is, but it's this incredibly beautiful, interesting sound and melody to being like, mm. to being totally obsessed with it and thinking like, this is almost like a, like a Rosetta stone of sorts to the mm. opposite of like, well, who cares? It's just some old poor person <laughs> in the middle of fucking Mississippi. You know, it's nothing. It's like throwaway, like how they go between he's, I should read this again, but it's, um, the way he talks about the way these guys feel about this music is how I feel a lot of times about gardening. I also guess guess music too is just how it's like it's the most important thing, but the other times you're just like, who cares? It's like this is mm. like the plant just the plant's just doing what it does. You know, it's doing what it does. Mm. It's not like there's any mystery to it. It's just it's just the nature of of what it is. I don't know how to describe mm. it. It's like a weird. It's like that thing between nihilism and um, whatever the opposite of that would be, but kind of coexisting, Ooh, yeah. like, like the duality of that thinking. Yeah, I love it. I love that you you can hold those two poles in your mind. I love that we're able to do that as people. It's we're almost like you hold them in contempt. Too. It's almost like you have some some sort of contempt for <laughs> for some of the, yeah. uh, the plant life and stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when people are uh, getting all up and up, people ask you questions about it, all this stuff. It's like I don't know, you know. It just just fucking do it. Just uh, just grow mm-hmm. it. If it doesn't grow, it doesn't grow. Or it's like stop thinking about it so much. To or to I'll go from that to being like thinking about it obsessively to the point where I it's all I'm thinking about. There have been times when <laughs> all I could think about was my garden. I think about it like day in and day out. I'd wake up thinking about it and go to sleep thinking about it, like planning it, like just stuff like that to where that resonates big time. There's it no can end. draw you in, huh? Yeah. That's cool. I love that. That's maybe, maybe that's a helpful tip for people who are wanting to get into gardening too. And asking your advice is maybe just do it, mm-hmm. <laughs> just start doing it and don't worry as much about it, but easy to tell someone to not worry about it, I guess. Yeah. Uh, easy to, <clears throat> If before well, we wrap up, is there? I feel like we should talk about some more, um, some real, real cogent gardening advice. Oh yeah, we can do that. Because it's springtime. Sure. Yeah. People, people, should I? Could I? Can I? Should I riff a little bit on what I would tell people? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you probably well, already I, do tell people stuff all the time, right? So. I do, but I, I think I like the idea of starting where you, you would have the way you answered this question for new gardeners, which is to start with seasonal, start really considering the seasons and look at some planting charts because everyone now has access to proper timing charts for their area, pretty much in North America. Anyway, I'm sure in most places you could dig around and find mm-hmm. the right charts. Like in my area, people often use the West Coast Seeds chart as a seed company and they publish charts for free online. But yeah, to consider seasonality. And to consider that what we're growing might not be dictated entirely by what grows well here, but that it might it might be 
influenced strongly by the culinary culture of the area mm-hmm. and that we might actually have a much broader palette of plants to work with in terms of edible plants and in terms of ornamentals. We might have a much broader palette of plants from which to choose than we expect by looking around at our friends and neighbors' gardens. Like it may or may not be, but probably is possible that there's a lot of really amazing fruits and vegetables, like really, really amazing fruits and vegetables that we're not growing, but we could be growing. And I think that that to me is one of the very most interesting things. And here where I live, I mean, where you live, winter gardens are much more established idea. But where I live, winter vegetables almost don't exist at all in the gardening Mm -hmm. culture. Like people will grow leeks, kale, chard for winter. Sometimes they'll grow parsley and a couple of other things, occasionally beets, carrots, a couple other things. But there's a much, much, much broader spectrum of plants that will work very well in the winter here if they're given very minimal protection. Like I use low poly tunnels that I make with pipe and rebar and Mm -hmm. pieces of wood. But anything in my climate that puts a piece of clear poly over the bed at the coolest times of year, so where I am, that's like late October through March or April. If the plants are protected at that time of year with clear plastic, we can grow dozens, if not more, well, dozens of different types of winter vegetables, and we can eat them all winter long. And it's like, considering that, I think, as part of the season discussion, makes a huge difference. And increasingly, that's what I talk about when people ask me about gardening. I talk about winter gardening and extending the garden season because people in my area have this, um, not everybody, but it's very common to have sort of a continental approach to gardening and to put your garden in on roughly the same schedule you might in Ontario or on the prairies or a more continental part of North America. But we're way out on the coast with these long but not severe winters and long relatively moderate temperature autumns and springs and we have a very different seasonal setup than continental north america and as such we're able to grow like amazing winter vegetables i'm planting my garden this year with the winter vegetables first and i'm placing all the winter vegetables and then i'm going to work my rotations from there so i'm going to sort out like okay this bed's going to get these winter vegetables planted at this time what can i grow in the spring before that and also maybe what can I grow after that but I'm putting the winter stuff in first because I found over the years that that those vegetables are higher value in almost every way for me than summer vegetables like I find it pretty easy to have enough zucchini for quite a few months and enough cucumbers and I don't really even need that much space to fulfill my zucchini and cucumber needs but my winter vegetable needs are more space I need more space and I need more time but they're providing fresh highly nutritious vegetables for like in my climate, basically half the year, my harvests are what would be considered winter vegetables like November, December, January, February, March, and then into April. Yeah, almost half the year, my harvests are of the group of vegetables that is considered winter vegetables. And then the summer vegetables start to get planted in the spring, March and April, and we eat them through, yeah, October or so. But so it's like where I am this far north, it's a 50-50 split. So I feel like in a lot of North America, if people focus on winter vegetables, they can get a much, much, much longer season. And they can get, like, even just, I don't think a lot about economics and vegetables because I'm not farming anymore and I'm just growing for myself. But a consideration from an economic perspective, too, uh, vegetables are more expensive and generally lower quality in the dead of winter. And they're, they're cheaper and generally higher quality in summer. And if I can produce them at the time of year when they're more expensive and lower quality, I'm, um, in a sense, getting more bang for my buck or more bang for my effort or use of garden space. 
So I'm like highly interested in that as a concept right now. And I like very much want to hear what other people's experiences have been. And that's sort of why I started using Twitter too, because I wanted to figure out a way to put up a bunch of pictures of what's possible in the wintertime in this climate. Mm-hmm. So on a whim, I started using Twitter in November to do that. And now I'm, I'm probably going to put other, I mean, I've been putting other pictures up now, but I really, I really like that too. That was my first foray really into social media and, I found it to be super rewarding, but that, that was what propelled me to do that is I wanted a way to show some images of that. Um, the images of what is possible because what is possible in winter here is so much broader than I ever, ever expected. And like, to me, super hopeful. Yeah. It's not, I mean, that's the, I think that's a, a big, a good thing to think about to close on is the idea that, um, the, you can really you can do so much more than I think people realize how, with the garden. You can you can grow. Like we're talking about like seasonal stuff, but also the opposite is the case too, where you can like you can do a, you can do a lot of stuff with very little if you just set up the things in the right conditions. Totally, it's it's very close to magic when it works well. <laughs> that is that is so true. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it, it basically is magic, right? It, to some extent, because I guess, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like anytime something does work, I still to the point where anytime something comes out of the ground that I planted, I'm like, man, I can't believe it actually worked. Yeah, I still feel that way too. After yeah. many, many years, yeah. very much have that feeling. I think there's got to be something That's, in our brains wonderful. that does that. Maybe it's some sort oh, of primitive so thing. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's like old stuff that we can't escape. Like when people first see people first get into vegetable gardens and they'll gaze upon a new bed of earth, you know, sprouting a row of something Mm -hmm. or growing something. And when it first starts to grow, like people have described that to me in ways that are very profound. Like people have described their feeling to witness that, like in ways that has, has, it's, it's very transformative for some people in some situations, I think. And, potentially very healing as well. And I think it, I think we, for the past, however many thousands of years, not our whole evolution as a species, but for the past 10 or 20 or 30,000 years, I'm not totally sure. Raising crops has been a big part of what we've been up to. And I think that doesn't go away with a couple of centuries of industrialization and modern society. I think it's sitting there waiting to germinate in Mm -hmm. people yeah, totally. I think and about I, that a lot. Even if, you, even if you think about before uh, people were growing things, uh, cultivating things, if you're just hunting and gathering, if you're just gathering, you're looking out for stuff, and that's probably a big part of your brain is your there's some permanent part of your brain that sees certain things or smells certain things that that tells it like, okay, this is going to be good. This is a this is a good thing. Yeah. That we see this this little shoot coming out or like the how the yeah. color of green that this pine needle is means it's really soft. Kind of just stuff like that. It seems totally. like it just never go away. Never. Not in thousands of years. Yeah, I think can't. a lot of that is patterns too, patterns and rhythms. I think mm-hmm. we can see patterns. Like I, I pick a lot of wild mushrooms and I'm not always totally sure which part of the visual system, for lack of a better word, I'm using to see where mushrooms are. Like I'm not, I don't think it's what I used to think it was necessarily that I see this one thing that that is that I think it has to do with patterns and rhythms across the landscape. And I think our brains are picking up like um, 
things occurring in certain sequences and in certain arrangements. And yeah, it's kind of hard to describe, but no, I, I think like sense. rows of plants. It's like you're kind of seeing something. It's that thing where, you know, those old magic eye things where you cross your eyes and something pops out. Mm, yeah. It's almost like you're seeing something that's there in, com- in the composite and not something that's there at a macro level. It's like you're kind of taking a, a broad look at something and that's how you can kind of, you kind of, it's almost like you say, oh, I f- it feels like there's going to be some more over here, but really, you know they are because it's like this mm, is yes. a pattern that's established that you can't describe that is something yes. that tells your brain like, oh, this is this is where they've been before in something like this. So I bet there'll be something like this over here again. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's super. That comes up shit. again and again. Totally. Very old stuff. Wow. That's yeah, cool, and and happening deep in our brain somewhere. Mm. That's I like crazy. that kind of thing. That's nice to think about. It was great talking with you, Ryan. We covered so much cool Likewise, shit here. Likewise, Johnny. What, so, a, what a delight to speak with you. And what's so uh, people can see your uh, your pictures and stuff. Your Twitter is uh, it's R-N-A-S-S-I-C-H-U-K, R-N-A-S-S-I-C-H-U-K on Twitter. Yes, yes, R-N-A-S-S-I-C-H-U-K. And I can be emailed, too, if people would like. It's just my last name, N-A-S-S-I-C-H-U-K at Gmail. Cool. And... I'm for hire in a variety of ways. Awesome. So, um, yeah, folks are certainly welcome to reach out. Great. Thanks for talking, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Johnny. This was an absolute delight, and I hope your spring garden grows beautifully. You're getting a little too smart. You're trying to get ahead. You're playing with my heart. Between the lines of red I got to cut you down And make you hang around